It's so good to be here with you guys. Like Jordan said, we've been able to be good friends for a long time. Jordan helped me get into the Bethlehem residency 11 years ago in 2008, and uh, we've been in meetings uh, ever since. And so I've got to know him, I've got to know a number of your elders, and just always been so encouraged and so blessed by every time that we've got together. We feel just such a connection, and so that's why I'm so excited to be here uh, with all of you this morning. It's so good to be here. James Smith writes, he says, to be human is to be orientated towards some vision of the good life, some picture of what we think counts as human flourishing. Basically, he's just saying that all of us, whether it's conscious, whether it's self subconsciously, but all of us, we have a vision of what success looks like, a picture of what the good life is. And that picture of the good life is what actually motivates and propels and even guides every single little decision that you end up making throughout the day. Your vision of the good life, it's what helps you decide at the end of the day, has this been a good day or a bad day? It's what helps you decide as the year comes to an end, has this been a successful year or an unsuccessful year? This morning, I I want us to know that we're going to even find out that your vision of the good life actually impacts the way you see God. What you believe about the good life will have a radical impact on the way that you understand God. That's why this morning I want us to to take a second and to, to really think, how do I understand the good life? What is the good life? As you were coming in today, I wonder if someone asked you, are you living the good life? Would you say yes? Would you say no? I, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping. What, what do you dream about? What, what, do you, what do you find yourself looking forward to? What are your if-onlys? The if-onlys that if only my kids would listen better, if only my kids would love Jesus, if only I could afford a nicer house, if only I was married, if only I had a happy marriage. What are your if-onlys? What are the things in your life that if you lost them, you couldn't imagine life being worth living anymore? You couldn't imagine going forward? If I lost one of my children, if I lost my spouse, if I lost my job, if I lost my reputation... What, is in, what do you have in your life that you, you couldn't imagine living without? It's questions like this that help us get a better understanding of what we think the good life really is. And remember that every single one of us has a, a picture, a vision. Even if we can't articulate it, we have one. A vision of the good life that actually impacts, it, it, it guides and it propels every single decision we make throughout the day. And because that's true, I think it's really, really important that whatever our view of the good life was coming in, that we take a few moments and we consider what it ought to be. What what should our view of the good life be? I think Psalm 73 comes to help us understand what the good life really is. Psalm 73, if you want to turn there, that's going to be our text for the day. 
See, Psalm 73 is what's called a wisdom psalm. And one of the things that this wisdom psalm comes to do is it actually comes to answer the question, what is the good life? It's a question this psalm is going to help us answer. The psalmist begins, verse 1, and he says something that's been ingrained in his head since he was a little kid. Surely God is good to Israel. He's saying, surely God is good to His people. Some of you may have been in churches or in places where somebody will get up and say, God is good, and everybody else responds all the time. Right? That, that, that's the kind of church this guy grew up in. Every single week, God is good, God is good, God is good, all the time, ingrained in his head. So before he says anything else, he just starts by saying, this is what I've heard all my life, God is good to his people. But that's as far as he gets before he finds himself running into a problem. You see, what the psalmist can't seem to understand is if God is good to his people, then why isn't he living the good life? That's what he can't understand. That's what he can't get past. I wonder how many of you have ever felt that way. Have you ever wondered if God is really good to his people, then why is my life so hard? If God is good... And why did my parents get a divorce? If God is good, then why did He let my children rebel? If God is good, then why can't I afford to pay all my bills? If God is good, why did my spouse leave me? If God is good, why are my parents sick? If God is good, why am I so lonely? Why so depressed? Why so anxious? Why so confused? If God is good to His people, why is my life so hard? That's what the psalmist can't understand. If you've ever asked that question, you're in good company. That's the question he's asking right now. That's what he can't figure out. That's what he can't seem to move past. That's not all he's struggling with. Not only does he wonder why his life isn't good, he looks around and he sees that the wicked, the people that could care less about God, their life seems to be so perfect. It seems to be going so well. Look at what he says in verse 2 through 4. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. He goes on for ten more verses to rant about how good the life of the wicked is. Concluding it all in verse 12 when he says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Do you want to know how you're defining the good life? I'll give you a really easy test to understand how you're defining the good life. All you have to do is look at what you envy. Consider what you envy. Whatever it is that you find yourself envying, that is how you are understanding the good life. We can tell really easy what the psalmist believed the good life was by looking at what he envied. For the psalmist, if you ask him, define for me the good life, 
He would say, well, that's pretty easy. It's the life of ease, the life of comfort, the life of prosperity, the life that every, all the wicked seem to be living, the life that I'm not living. That's the good life. The psalmist, it's really important you understand, the psalmist has defined the good life as a life of comfort, a life of ease, a life of wealth, a life of prosperity. And what he cannot seem to understand is if that is the good life, and if God is really good to his people, then why are the wicked living the good life and not him? It's what he can't figure out. It's what he can't understand. I want you to see something. This has moved. This is not about money or wealth or comfort anymore. It's changed. The psalmist would love to have those things, but that's not his struggle right now. His struggle has grown far deeper. His struggle is, am I able to believe any longer what my parents have told me since I was young? Am I able to believe that God is good? That's what he's struggling with. He's struggling with, can I truly in good conscience say that God is good when I do not believe that He is giving me the good life? That's what he's struggling with. Look at what, look at it. It seems clear in verse 13. Look what he says. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. I want you to see his logic. God is good to the pure in heart, verse 1. So I will keep my heart pure. If I do, God will be good to me. If God is good to me, God will give me the good life. If He gives me the good life, my life will be full of comfort, ease, and wealth. That's His logic. And because He was forced to conclude that God had not given him a life of comfort, ease, and wealth, he found himself forced to conclude that his parents were wrong, that God might not be good to his people after all. All in vain have I kept my heart pure, because God is not good to the pure in heart like I thought he was. He's not good to the pure in heart because I'm not living the good life. All my life I've been stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. All the while the wicked are out there living lives of comfort, ease. Of course, you, you, you recognize it. You see his logic, but you're hoping that there's some flaw in his logic because you don't like his conclusion. And praise God, there is a flaw in his logic, and uh, I think it's important that we try to figure out what that flaw is. The flaw in his logic is that he's misdefined the good life. This, the first five parts of his logic fit great. It's part six. It's his misdefinition of the good life that's the problem. And I want you to grasp how serious the way you define the good life is. When you misdefine the good life, it will lead you to envy the wicked and to distrust the goodness of God. I want you to grasp that. I think it is impossible to believe that God is good to His people if you do not believe that God has given you the good life. 
Think about that. How could you honestly in good conscience believe that God was good to you if you thought He was withholding the good life from you? How could you trust Him? We know God is in control of everything, so if you are not living the good life, we know who's ultimately responsible for that. We know who's keeping you from it if you don't have it. And how is it that we can trust that God is good when He withholds good things from His people? That's the lie that that broke this world in the first place, isn't it? That God was withholding good things from His people. Isn't that what Satan came to tempt Eve with? Isn't that what she believed? Don't you see how dangerous it is to believe that God is withholding good things from His people? If you believe that, do you see where it led? Do you see the brokenness that it led to? That's why if you do not believe that God has given you the good life, then you'll you'll find you've bought into that lie. Some of you wonder why it's so hard to trust God. One of the things that makes it really hard to trust God is when we start to doubt that we're living the good life. When we start to to no longer believe that the life we're living is the good life, we find it very difficult to trust God. I want you to think about that. I I want you to to think about that. When, When you walked in this morning, if I'd ask you, are you living the good life? Those of you that would have said, no, I don't think so, or I, I got a plan to get there, but I'm not quite there yet. I, w- I want you to consider if, if that might be part of what makes it so difficult for you sometimes to really trust God. That's where the psalmist is at. If that's where you're at, don't, don't despair. That's where he was at. That's where he's at in verse 16. The first 16 verses of this psalm, that's exactly where he's at. He believes, if you ask him, when he is in verse 16, who has the good life, he would say, the wicked, not me. That's what he would say. Then he walked in. Hopefully this happens even for some of you. He walked into the sanctuary And something changed. He heard a message that that changed his perspective on the good life. And here's how it happened. I thought the wicked lived the good life until I went to the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Standing there in the temple, all of a sudden the psalmist realized, I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. I thought the wicked had the good life, but I was wrong. They don't. They don't have the good life. He, he realizes in, in this moment that the good life, are, or that, the, that the wicked are on this slippery slope, and even now he sees them slipping in a moment to utter and total ruin. There in the sanctuary, the psalmist must have felt like he got kicked in the gut as it dawned upon him that he had been envying people on their way to hell. How many of us have been guilty of that? 
How many of us have found ourselves from time to time envying people on their way to hell? Because of their wealth, because of their prosperity, because they don't have to follow the rules, because they seem to get away with everything. And when he realized that, when he realized that, he realized what a fool he'd been. Verse 21 and 22, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The psalmist realized his envy had been born out of ignorance and it had turned him into a brute beast. The truth is I've seen envy have that same effect in my own life. I remember maybe six or seven years ago, uh, we had a Bible study on Friday night, the one Jordan was telling you about, and a woman came by from Arizona, and she was driving through, and she stopped by our Bible study, and we got to talking, and she told me she was a part of a church plant, and I just, I love church planting, and so my eyes just, just got big, and I was so excited, and I was like, oh, how long have you been going? And she said, oh, we just started like a year ago, and I'm just thinking back to what that first year was like, and I'm thinking, oh man, I, I can't wait to just hear more about this. Maybe I'll be able to offer a few words of encouragement to her, and I'm trying to get the context and just understand what it's like, and so I'm like, so how many people do you have? You know, tell me about this church, and she's like, oh, we got a little over 200, and I, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I just wasn't quite ready for that. So, uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I, you know, but I wasn't ready to get knocked off yet. I wasn't ready. I had an idea. I thought, well, maybe she like got planted out of one of those really big churches. And maybe they took like 150 people or something from like a really big church when they started. And so I came back. I wasn't, I wasn't deterred yet. I came back and I said, ah, you must have taken like a, a really big core group from the mother church, huh? She goes, nah, just a couple people. Just God's just been growing us like crazy. It's amazing. Here's the thing. That's amazing news. That's great news. What do you think is better, that they take 150 people from a core group and they're 200, or that they took 12 from a core group and now they're 200? It was, her answer was better news than my assumption. What she told me should have, should have lifted my heart. It should have made me so excited for the kingdom of God, the way it's expanding, the way it's growing. What she said was amazing. But the truth is, if I'm honest with you, when she said that, something in my heart dropped. Something in my heart actually felt sad. I'll tell you the truth. If she would have said they had 50 people, I would have been more motivated to continue the conversation, more excited about what was happening in her church, more desirous to, to just encourage her with some good news. I would have been happier in that moment, if her church was smaller and looked just a little bit more like ours. All you got to do is say that out loud. All I have to do is say it out loud to recognize how brutish and ignorant that is. How terrible that is. You see what I was doing, right? I was associating the good life with a fast-growing church. And what I couldn't understand is how we've been working at this for six, seven years, 
and it wasn't happening. And this lady just starts and it happens like that. I didn't know why they got the good life and we didn't. That's what happened to the psalmist. His misunderstanding of the good life led him to act in a way that was brutish and ignorant towards God. And as the psalmist came to grips with this, he he began to realize that he was no better than the wicked. Don't you see that? You see how he starts out envying the wicked, and then he realizes that his envy has made us brutish and ignorant, so he's just, I mean, the order goes like this. Envy the wicked then wake up to realize the wicked are actually on a slippery slope headed to hell, not to be envied. And then all of a sudden he realized that his envy of the wicked made him a brute beast, ignorant, embittered, evil just like them, which meant that he was on that same slippery slope which meant that he deserved the same thing they deserved. He deserved, like the wicked, to be swept utterly away by tares. But somehow, that's not what happened to the psalmist. Verse 23, after talking about what a brute beast he was, and how ignorant he was, and how he realized he's on that same slippery slope and he ought to be swept utterly away by terrors and it ought to be over and he didn't deserve anything. All of a sudden, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your word. And afterwards, you will welcome me to glory. Do you see what happened? How would the psalmist survived when his feet began to slip in verse 2? How had he escaped being destroyed in a moment for his ignorant and brutish ways? The psalmist looked up and he said, what happened is God was there beside him. What happened was when his feet began to slip, someone reached out and grabbed his hand. The God of the universe reached out and grabbed his hand. That his God was guiding him despite all of his ignorance, all his, his failure, all of, the, of his, his misunderstanding. His God was there to guide him. And afterwards, his God would welcome him into glory. At this point, he's just absolutely overwhelmed. He comes in verse 25 and 26. Uh, when he realized that, he said, well, well, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth, there's, there's no one that I desire beside you. My heart, my heart's going to fail. My heart and my flesh are going to fail, but God, He is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. That word portion, one of the ways I love to, to see it defined or understood is just enough. My God is my enough, my portion, my enough, both now and forever. Verse 28, he brings everything to a conclusion. He says, but for me to be near, it is good to be near God. I, I love the way the NASB puts it. He says, but for me, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. Do you see what's happened? 
I hope you can see what's happened. The psalmist's whole perspective has changed and finally he understands what the good life is. None of his circumstances have changed. His perspective has changed. You see, it's kind of funny, right? At the beginning of this psalm, it seems to me that there was a lot of things on earth that the psalmist desired beside God. Didn't it seem like that in the first 16 verses? At the beginning of the psalm, it seems to me he's very concerned about his flesh. All in vain have I kept my way pure because I've been stricken and and afflicted. At the beginning of this psalm, it seems to me that he believes the wicked are the ones who are enjoying the good life, but all that's changed. Now he sees the wicked sliding down towards an eternity of suffering, and he knows the only thing that kept him safe was that his God was right there beside him, that his God was holding his hand, and finally he gets it. Finally, he realizes what the good life is. And he says, as for me, now I understand the nearness of God. That is the good life. That's what he's saying. Of course, that actually raises another question for us. The question of how. How could a holy God offer a brute beast like the psalmist, the good life. I mean, verse 1 makes it clear who gets the good life, right? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But the psalmist has already told us his heart was embittered towards God. He was brutish and ignorant like a beast toward Him. He, He didn't have a pure heart. So how could God actually be good to the psalmist when his heart was not pure? How could God offer hard-hearted beasts like the psalmist the good life? Have have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever done something so brutish, so ignorant? Have you ever done something that even surprised you? And found yourself wondering how on earth God could still love you? You ever done something that made you feel ashamed? That made it hard for you, as much as you are biased toward yourself, to actually still love yourself? And you start to think, if I am struggling to love myself because I cannot believe I just did that, how on earth could a holy, perfect God still love me? This psalm is meant to leave all of us asking, how is it possible for a holy God to offer sinners like us the good life? How is it possible for Him to offer us the good life after all that we have done? I think for centuries, this question looms over this psalm. God's people wait in anticipation to see how He's going to answer it. How is he going to relieve this massive tension? They waited and they waited until one day the sanctuary of God actually took on flesh and came down to dwell among people. And unlike every single human being who's ever been born, Jesus was pure at heart. 
Jesus is the true Israel, the true pure in heart. Verse 1 is true of Him. God is good to the pure in heart, to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It, It makes sense for Him. This means that Jesus, of all the people who have ever lived, Jesus deserved a good life. In fact, according to verse 1 of Psalm, 20, of Psalm 73, he's the only one who deserved a good life because he's the only one who's pure in heart. And guess what? For all eternity, Jesus had been living the good life. John 1.18 tells us where Jesus had been for all eternity. He'd been in the lap of God the Father. Remember what the good life is? The good life is to be near God. So who has had the good life for all eternity? Jesus. He lived the good life. He had it for all eternity. No one could compare to the life that he had experienced. Why? He was pure in heart. He was God's true Son. But he left his Father's side. And he came down to earth. And he dwelt among the wicked. And do you know what he saw? He watched them seemingly get away with everything. And like the psalmist, he found himself stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But unlike the psalmist, he refused to envy the wicked, and he refused to distrust his father. Nevertheless, he still found himself on a slippery slope. Within five days, Jesus went from being honored as the Messiah in the temple to being crucified on a cross outside the city. That is a fast fall. That is a slippery slope. From here to here, he slipped. He slipped quickly. He slipped fast. He slipped far But even on the cross, he found himself slipping further and further and further. As he hung on the cross, he found himself slipping more and more and more towards the dreadful wrath of God the Father. And the hour of his greatest trial, as he found himself slipping, the speed increasing, 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 ever faster, ever faster, he reaches out for his Father's hand. And when he needed him the most, the God who had been at his side for all eternity let go of his son's hand. And Jesus found himself flailing as he headed headlong into judgment. Make no mistake, on the cross it was Jesus who was swept away utterly by tears. In that moment, Jesus stopped living the good life, as the nearness of God forsook him, and he found himself suffering the judgment of of the wicked all by himself. The judgment that the psalmist saw the wicked experiencing was the judgment that he bore in his body on the cross as he called out to his Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why don't I have the good life anymore? Where are you? Finally, the tension of Psalm 73 is relieved. The innocent Son of God gave up the good life so that He could offer it to brute beasts like us. 
There on the cross, the Father let go of His hand, Son, so that He could offer it to sinners like us as our feet began to slip. There He turned His back on His Son so that He could be continually with us. The Son of God left the Father's side. He left the good life so that He could bring us to it. 1 Peter 3.18 He suffered so that He might bring us to God. So Grace Church, this is what you need to know for certain this morning. God is good to His people. He's good to His people. He gave His only Son so that you and I might not have to perish like the brute beast we are, but instead might receive eternal life. God is good to His people. He's good to you. He's good when you deserve it, and He's good when you don't. He's good when you succeed, and He's good when you fail. He's good when people love you, and He's good when they leave you. Your God is good to you when your life is easy, and He is good to you when your life is hard. God is good to His people. The God who did not spare His own Son, but freely offered Him up for His people is good. He's good. All the time. If you want to know what the good life is, this is what it is. The good life is for you and I to be near the God I just described to you. That's the good life. For you to know that this God is continually with you. That He holds you by your hand whenever you begin to slip. That He will not let you go. That He will not let you fall. That He would not let the, the, the dogs of hell get a hold of your ankles and drag you down. He holds you by the hand. He will not let you go. You are safe. When life's confusing, when you don't get it, when you don't understand it, when you, when you feel like beyond yourself. He guides you with His Word, and after it's all said and done, He will welcome you to glory. That is the good life. That's the good life. First time I preached this sermon, this text, not this sermon, but this text, it's about eight years ago. I remember it. I remember that season in my life like it was yesterday. My wife and I uh, are unable to have children of our own. And, uh, and it was a couple years into the church plant, and we had this Bible study full of homeless people. And this homeless woman asked us to adopt her little baby. She told us she'd been raped by her ex-boyfriend and that she was six months pregnant. And she asked if we would take this little baby and we told her we would, and we began to take her to all of her doctor's appointments. We went to the ultrasounds. We, the, the church through my wife, you can imagine, you know, the church, how excited they were for my wife to be able to maybe have a little baby. And so they threw her a baby shower and just so many gifts and so many things. And we set up a room for this little baby. Uh, and then three months later, the baby was born, this little girl. And we went to the hospital and we picked her up. Her name was Cynthia. And uh, we took her home. And she, she had some uh, addictions and some, some, some 
she, her mother had used drugs and things, and so she had withdrawals, and so she was difficult at the beginning. Uh, I took the night shift, my wife took the day shift, and so we both ended up holding her most of the time because she had a hard time sleeping. And uh, I remember so many nights just holding her and feeding her. And I remember after about three weeks, you're, you're pretty attached. She had begun to calm down and start to sleep, but you hold a baby that long and uh, you become pretty attached. And one night, I got a call just out of nowhere. There's a social worker and uh, she said, I, uh, I guess the story you guys heard uh, wasn't really accurate. She says, uh, I guess the, the dad didn't really rape uh, the mom. And it uh, turns out he just found a new girlfriend, and his girlfriend wants a baby. So, uh, so I'm going to need you guys to, to take Cynthia, and this is his address. And so if you don't mind taking all the things that, that are Cynthia's, all the things that people have given to her and bring them to this address and, and give her back to her father. I remember that night holding her, feeding her. I'm a sentimental person, so I remember I, I took her last bottle that I fed her at 9 o'clock in the morning and I washed it out and I still have it on a shelf in my office. That's the only thing I kept, a blanket and a bottle, but... Uh, then I loaded everything else that was hers into the minivan and we took some pictures and my wife and I got in the car and we drove. When we got there, the father came out and I held Cynthia while he emptied out the van and took everything into his house. And then I took Cynthia in and uh, like we prayed together and I handed him the baby. I said goodbye and my wife and I walked out to our car, got in the van. It's crazy, she's so small, but the, the weight of her absence felt really heavy. The silence felt deafening. We couldn't drive away, we just sat there, parked on the side of the road for a long time. My wife cried, I cried. But I... I couldn't get this psalm out of my head. And so after crying for quite a while, I took my wife's hand, and I looked at her, and I looked her in the eyes, and I said, beautiful. Beautiful you and me. We have the good life. I said, right here, right now, in this van, we already have the good life. Remember, God taught me that day, God taught me that the good life's not having a baby. The good life's not having a nice family or a growing church. That day, alone in that car with red eyes and a broken heart, I realized the good life is just to, to know that you're not alone. That your God is continually with you. That even when you feel yourself slipping away, that He's holding your hand. That even when you find yourself utterly confused, He's guiding you with this word and that even when you don't think you can make it another day you have the hope that soon he will welcome you into glory 
and everything sad will become untrue and everything broken will be fixed and it will be okay. That's the good life. The good life is knowing that we don't need anything on this earth besides Him. It's remembering our hearts and our flesh and all that we see and behold and cling to is going to fail us, but He will not. He will hold us by the hand. He will guide us with His Word. He will welcome us to His glory. He is our portion, our enough, both now and in every moment in the future until forevermore. So before we go any further along in our lives, I want us to just take some time this morning and make sure that we rightly understand what the good life is. You don't, just, just the last eight years, this is just a mantra. The nearness of God is the good life. Every time I find myself envy and every time I feel frustrated, every time I don't want to go on anymore, every time I can't understand or believe why God has allowed this to happen, you come back here and you say, the nearness of God, as for me, as for me, the nearness of God is the good life. Something that's helped me a little bit is, is putting it in perspective when I realized this. The Son of God did not shed His blood on the cross so that I could have a baby. The Son of God did not give His life on the cross so that you could have a better job or more obedient kids or a happier marriage. He didn't die. He didn't leave the good life and come down and shed His blood on the cross and slip further and further and further from His Father into His very wrath. He didn't do that so that you and I could live lives of comfort and ease. He did it to give us the good life. Not the cheap substitutes that we're so easily drawn to. He did it to give us the good life. The Son of God left the good life. He suffered so that He could bring us with Him back to God and we could enjoy the good life together for all eternity. That's what He did. That's why He died. And that means something pretty sweet. That means this. That however you came in here today, whatever poverty, whatever affliction, whatever suffering, whatever struggles, whatever anxiety, whatever loneliness, you came in here today, you can know one thing. You can leave with the good life. You're probably thinking the good life's around the corner some of you all think you're close. Others of you gave up on the good life a long time ago because it's way too far. But I'm telling you, it's near. It's as near as your God. You can have the good life right now, right here. And once you have the good life, you can never lose it. Once you have the good life, you can never lose it. Grace Church, let's, let's just say with the psalmist, as for us, as for us, the nearness of God, that's a good life. That's our portion. That's our enough. 
Nothing more than that that we want in heaven. Nothing more than that that we need on earth. Our hearts, our flesh, and everything else that we're tempted to trust in is going to fail us. Not our God. Not the one that shed his blood. Not the one that died in our place. When you remember what he did to offer you the good life, you will know why every cheap substitute will never satisfy. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. Let's pray. Dear God, we, we recognize how often we've been like the psalmist. We've envied the wicked. We've distrusted Your goodness. We've, we've envied people, sometimes people on their way to hell. We've longed for a life of comfort. We've defined the good life as something that we could grasp a hold of on this earth, and God, we recognize even this morning that that makes us brute beasts, that makes us like the wicked. And we've seen what happens to the wicked. They slip away, utterly destroyed by terrors. And God, we recognize that's what we deserve. Nevertheless, we come and we say this, Nevertheless, we have realized that You are continually with us. You hold us by the right hand. You guide us with Your counsel. Afterwards, You will receive us into glory. And You do these things for brute beasts like us because You turned Your back on Your Son. He gave up the good life so that we could have it. So that He could bring us to You. You let go of his hands so he could grab ours. And so we just say, that, God, there's nothing in this earth that we desire beside you. Whom have we in heaven but you? You are our portion, are enough forever. Our hearts, our flesh, they're going to fail us. But you will never fail us. You will never let us down. You are our enough. And so we say this morning, and I pray that you will brand in our minds for years and years to come until the day that you welcome us into glory. May we remember always as for us the nearness of God, the nearness of the God who will never leave us or forsake us. That is the good life. We have it now. We don't need to leave here empty. We will have it when it's good and when it's bad. Nothing can take the good life from us. Jesus, thank you. We don't deserve it, but you've given it, and we say thank you in your name. Amen.